listeners, this is our first episode for season three. And this is going to be a little bit of a different format. We are the first time doing it with a live audience. Which is quite exciting. Yes, very exciting. So without further ado, let's introduce our guest speakers. Joining us at the table for this recording, we have Dr. Alzan Rinquist. She is a lecturer at um, Stellenbosch University. Luckily, we actually had the privilege of having her as our lecturer last year. As a lecturer in the Department of Education Policy Studies, she teaches sociology of education and education policy and management. Her doctorate research study was conducted under the supervision of Professor Aslam Fattar and explored the pedagogical placemaking practices of teachers at the Special Needs School in Cape Town. So thank you for joining us in this recording. So we also have Niran Davids with us today, who's going to be part of the conversation. And she is a professor of philosophy of education in the Department of Education Policy Studies in the Faculty of Education at Stellenbosch University. She's an NRF-rated researcher whose research interests include democratic citizenship, education, Islamic philosophy of education, and the philosophy of higher education. She is also the co-editor and editor of various journals, as well as been the recipient of numerous awards, including but not limited to the NRF Research Excellence Award for Female Emerging Researcher, SU Distinguished Teacher Award, and SU Media Thought Leader Award. Prof. Davids has also written four very profound and impactful books. So Prof, I just want to say we are so honored to have you in conversation with us today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I want to introduce our topic in a quite different way. So I'm going to read you some newspaper articles. This was published in 2021, 2022, and 2023, respectively. So the first one is, Rising scourge of violence in SA schools are concerned for authorities. Educators as victims of learner violence in South African schools. And the last one, High Court grants UCT interdict against protesting students who disrupt and incite violence. So our topic is violence in the education system. So Prof. Niran, after hearing these titles, how does it make you feel to know that this is happening in our education system today? How does it make me feel? Uh, um, well, it's, it's obviously problematic for teachers. It's problematic for the education system and it's problematic for South African society. But I want to say to you that the issue of violence in South Africans' educational sites has a very strong historical um, legacy. And unless you unpack why violence sits so comfortably in educational sites, we're not going to be able to adequately resolve what we're confronted with at the moment. So in, just to get it started, I think it's important for us to understand that the issue of violence and violation in schools and in education, whether in primary schools, whether between learners or between teachers and learners or between principals and teachers or parents and teachers, and in higher education at the moment, which has become a perennial part of how we start the academic year in South Africa, these are continuations of a very long narrative, which has always been a part of the educational landscape. Um, and I'm going to just leave it there for now. And I can certainly expand on what I've just said um, once we hear from Dr. Dinquist. Thanks. Yes, Dr. Rickwist, we also want to know how you feel 
How do I talk after Professor Davids? But I mean, yeah, so for me, I can only, I think I predominantly speak of also my experiences in special needs education and that dimension of violence also coming in where you work with kids that can literally not control their behavior at times and maybe reflect also for myself just on, on experiences I've had of violence against myself in classes in primary schools you know so I, I don't know a lot around higher education things that is that is prof's area so um, I think and, and she has been in it for much longer but I, I think I will reflect on teacher experiences based on my experience and, and what I've seen at schools. I also want to point this question to the audience how do you feel knowing that we as students are going into the system and how do you feel after hearing these articles that were not published long ago, but are still being published. What is your first initial emotional response to it? Because we know that violence is rampant in schools, but what's the sensation, I think, inside of you? And it, there's no right or wrong. It's just a, it's a conversation. So, yeah. I think for me, it's, it's quite disheartening. So I, I'm a lecturer in practical learning. And of course, uh, we get excited in being able to, to merge theory and practice with our students and prepare them for practicum and talk about building the toolkit. But of course, uh, all of it is within context. And whenever we do our reflective sessions after return from practicum, this is what we that we are you know um, faced with. So it does force us, I suppose, here in uh, the space that we're in to say, how much are we really preparing? teachers for the context um, as in, and, and our purpose within higher education to what extent are we say, are we, can we really say that we are doing that purposefully and intentionally. That's crazy. Yeah, I think just as you said now, there's little to no preparation when it comes to things like preparing you as a student teacher to go into a school and having been confronted by a learner with their own issues like from their own context, right? And on that note, I don't think it's possible to prepare you for every situation. I think it's very difficult to keep in mind that when you're going to school A versus school B, even though you think you are prepared for everything, you, I don't think you will be ever prepared for anything, which is actually quite funny to, to think about because on one end, you could have a school that has like this perfect system where everything just fits into place and everything just works and you don't have to put in, well, you have to put in little to no effort. And on the other end, you could have the perfect lesson plan and go into a classroom and nothing works where the student's behavior solely depends on how they feel that day so i think at the end of the day you will never be prepared to actually be able to say well you know what i'm going into the school into this classroom with a mindset of teaching these children without thinking about what could happen in scenario a scenario b or scenario c and i think one thing to link to that is with what actually happens when one of those scenarios re uh, actually happens so with regards to student on or learner on teacher violence, I think it's very easy to say, well, you as a teacher should know when to step back and when you should do this and when you should do that. Uh, do that. But there's no guidelines for it. You are essentially told to go to your higher ups and report the incident and then maybe go to um, the police and then take it from there. But there's no, in that moment, what do you do? You can't attack the child back given the circumstances. But on that same note, you as a learner in a school obviously also receive some violence in, in, in situations like not necessarily physical violence, but maybe breaking down the child emotionally. And how would you feel as a child receiving that? How do you actually respond to that? So I'm not sure, Michaela, if you maybe want to add something to that because, yeah. I hear exactly what you're saying. And I just want to ask the honored guests that we have. I don't know if you have any sort of anecdotes or any just story experiences that you feel linked to the, the articles. 
it's actually not as has just been described. I don't think that we are working in a faculty of education and not preparing you for, for schools. I think you've got to change the way you approach this discussion, that learners are not innately violent. Schools are not naturally violent sites. They become these sites. But you can, as a teacher, change it. Now, obviously, the, the previous speaker is quite correct when he says, I can't prepare you for the unpredictability of a learner's behavior. If something is happening at home, I can't foresee that. If there's a, a, a gang fight happening in a child's community and there's serious issues of, of vandalism and violence in the community, I can't control that. However, this is really important for us to understand is that teachers do have the capacity to change this narrative. And certainly what we try to do through our teaching program is to equip you in cultivating different kinds of classrooms. Now, that's where the hard work is. And many teachers do not want to do this hard work. Disciplinary problems do not simply arise out of nothing. A learner is not suddenly going to decide to be disrespectful to you or suddenly act in a violent way. There would have been cues leading up to that. Now, the only way you begin to disrupt, because there are many well-functioning schools in the most horrendous contexts, there are teachers who manage to teach perfectly calmly despite the circumstances of schools in violent communities. So there's something that's happening in those classrooms and that needs to be the focus. And so certainly what I'm trying to get to is if you go into a school, A, you've got to recognize that in your classroom, you have not only children, but you have children coming from different kinds of communities. So they come to you with immense diversity. As a teacher, you are not simply teaching your subject. You are busy cultivating a citizen. You are cultivating a human being. And we often lose sight of the moral imperative of what education ought to be doing. So you can't simply go into a school and focus on your subject from the outset. You've got to do the hard work of first getting to know your learner identities. You've got to know where learners come from. You've got to know who they are. You've got to know how to say their names properly. You've got to understand what poverty means. What happens to children when they don't eat the day before? The more you can build relationships with those you teach, the less inclined that child is going to be to act against you. It's, it's a model which works, but it's a model which demands of us as teachers to put in a lot more effort, which goes beyond curriculum and goes into our connection with human beings. And so the issue of violence is not separate. It's, it's something which we need to learn to, to deal with in a different way. And that means cultivating a classroom of mutual respect, mutual regard, mutual trust, of teaching with hope. And if you can go into a classroom and establish those dynamics from the outset, you will find that the poorest of learners the child who comes out of the most violent of homes will be a different child in your home. And that's the privilege of teaching. You do have the capacity to restory young people's stories. And, and so we mustn't allow 
the media, it's very easy to take, to take these headlines and sensationalize it. We mustn't allow that to cloud what teaching is because it's not that. Yes, we have violence in schools, but it's not as pervasive as the media would like us to believe it is. Thanks. Great, Prof. I can actually add to that. You, you did like a slur there and said home when you referred to the classroom. And I think I want to add to just that idea even that cultivating that type of culture in your classroom. I think I was a lecture on these, these things. You guys have been there. You should see who, who I've studied with, right? So I studied from Prof. David into what I teach also. And so for me, what I experience in special needs education, now you have kids that are diagnosed with defiance disorders that would have meltdowns, etc. But if you watch them closely also, you get to know that child. So that child might just be quicker to respond to some stimuli in the classroom. But it is, as Prof. David says, you can watch that child. If you know, if you know your kids, you know what will trigger the one that gets easily angry. You know, let's say, let's say the one that, that could become violent. And I've seen how when you cultivate within your classroom this home space, almost like you become the mother, the father for that child. I also write about that in my PhD, actually, where this one teacher, he was just becoming this father figure for the kids. And again, linking to what Prof just said, it is not only, and to do that, it's not only teaching your subject. He went out and he was like in the library at break times to create a safe space for autistic learners that can't cope outdoors. At the school where I was, it's a high school, so then kids... Hormonal stuff happen also, and, and they come from maybe abusive homes. So some kids would go to the foyer and knock out the front window of the school, etc. And kids would become violent with teachers. But again, there's something that creates that conflict. And it is normally words. And teachers with this approach that I am this authority figure and you have to listen to me does not work with those kids. At all, then, then they become oppositional or defiant and then they want to actually physically harm you, etc. Because in their minds, you are disrespecting them. So it's always this dance with each kid and, and you should know each child individually that you teach and linking to professor, you even know their file. You, you understand the home that they come from because you chat to them in break times or you don't just go around the corner and go take a smoke, you actually stay. Um, <laughs> you know, you are involved and you are there when it's sports, etc. Okay. I think one thing that I would just like to mention as well, when we were at our practicals last year, I had this learner who came up to me and said he wants to be like this family member of his. And I didn't understand what he said when he first said it until I started asking him some questions about, well, who is this person? What do they do? Why is this like such a huge figure in your life? And without a frown or a joke, manner he said to me that this person is in like some huge gang in Cape Town and my first thought was well this is wrong but how do I say now to this child listen this is wrong you shouldn't do this rather do this instead of following in the footsteps of this person in your family and I think one difficult thing that I found with myself at least is to set aside my thoughts on what I think is right versus what the child think is right and you don't want to demotivate the child by saying well whatever you think is right is wrong now and what I'm saying is right, is, is right. And I think to link to Dr. Rinquist, with that, it's difficult to like find that balance between respecting a child 
by not necessarily giving them what they want, but accommodating them in the way that they find necessary and not changing your own personality to suit that child. Because in the way that, as an example, using words when a child does whatever, how do you now go from, well, this is what I would have done to, well, this is what the child needs and not changing yourself. So, um, Prof. Davids, I wonder if you can maybe just quickly tell us that something around maybe how do you set aside your own personality by, or not, not your own personality, but your own biases with regards to maybe not changing yourself entirely, but still, I almost want to say, try and accommodate the child with regards to misbehavior. Well, the teaching profession in no way requires you to change your personality or to put aside your values. The issue of values is very centrally located in every single educational policy document. And certainly what part of your job as a teacher is to instill values where values might not be pleasant or to enhance it where it's already pleasant. And so there should be no need for you to compromise who you are in terms of values, right? If those values are good, because sometimes we think our values are sound, but if our values are stereotypically based or if our values are actually prejudicial, then they can become problematic. To use your example of a child coming to you and saying, I want to be like this gang figure, it's not an unusual statement for a young boy to make if that's the only role model he's ever had. And here's the problem with particular communities is that sometimes the only idea of success is associated with a particular kind of lifestyle. People who succeed professionally and who make something of their lives often leave these communities. So the children don't actually have a living example of what the real success looks like. Your job as a teacher is to use that moment, that moment that he said to you, I want to be a gangster, which is essentially what he's saying to you. you sh- that moment becomes an educative moment for the child where you actually have to talk him through it. So tell me about this person. Ask him. Ask him what the person does. Ask him what the risks are. Ask him what the values are of that person. And initially, he he might be quite kind of defiant about it because that's the only role model. Remember, we have a missing father syndrome in this country. And we have an equally problematic situation in schools where we have a serious shortage of positive male role models in high schools So and in primary schools as well. We have more in high schools, fewer in primary. So it's entirely likely for young men in particular to go through life and never encounter a positive male role model. So if you're that person, your job now is to talk through it and by role modeling your values to him and by gradually winning him over into your way of making good choices, legal choices, ethical choices, he will eventually begin to realize there's a gap between what you are doing and saying and and this man he's following. And that is why teaching is not something simply that we do. Teaching has to become an embodiment of who we are. Every single thing we say, the way we speak, how we discipline, how we respond to young people, Every single moment becomes an educative one. And this is why teaching is at once a tremendously privileged profession, but also a tremendously demanding profession. And so to turn that child's mind away from that lifestyle, 
can, it's indeed possible, if you present him with alternative opportunities. It's not enough for him for you to say, oh no, that's bad. You've got to offer him alternatives. And this is why schools become important sites for re-educating not only in terms of curriculum, but certainly in offering sports and cultural activities and other kind of social activities that gives children renewed senses of purpose. Prof. David, while you were speaking, I was thinking of when you said they were missing father figures. And I'm thinking, I'm recalling a moment in my teaching practice last year when we walked into the staff room and the principal was there and he said, first and foremost, I want to tell the guys that they shouldn't get too emotionally involved with the children because they um, tend to see them as the father figure and they get too close to them. So that was kind of a warning that he put out for the guys and also for, for the girls that we shouldn't get too emotionally attached to the, to the learners because they, they get emotionally attached to us because they see us as this figure in their society. So Michaela, I see you want to add something. I feel like everything that has been said so far, my mind is very open. My mind is working and it's thinking very quickly. But just to comment on that, I feel like how do we impact them? How do we connect with them as people? And, and I like what Prof said a few minutes ago. She was like, almost every moment becomes this educating moment. When, it, when education becomes something that is part of you, then everything becomes symbolic of, like, I think, Dr. Inquest, you mentioned this as well, a pedagogy of care that becomes essential. Yes, it becomes essential in the classroom. So I hear this principal's advice, and to an extent, I think... It's a very rational way to look at it, but also there's a deeper connection. Like everything Prof is saying, I'm like, my brain is it's absorbing. Like it's, it's so good. You are good. thinking it's in a different so way. Yeah. My mind is open, 100%. I don't yeah. know if the, the audience has anything to comment on. I don't know if your mind has been open to anything specific. As well. I love that you used the word open. Yeah. <laughs> Prof Madiba. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult topic. But, uh, you know, first, I, I, I think... I mean, if I can reflect back to my experience as a teacher, taught in different contexts, I, I think what I've, the impact really that I've seen happening is first, you know, you approach that space as a, as a human being. You are dealing with the human beings there. And uh, you're not dealing with a group. You might have 80 learners in the class, 40. Each child comes there has got his or own gym. And you need to, you're meeting them in, in different points of their journey. Others have gone through difficult experiences. Others have gone through, you know, violence. So you, you, you have to meet them where they are. But the most important thing that I've seen that has cannot resist is humanity. If you, 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 you approach them as a human being, however violent they are, but that would call it Ubuntu pedagogy. You know, we can talk about it, but, but there's nothing that beat Ubuntu pedagogy. I see you, I understand where you come from. Yes, I'm not accept, welcome your behavior and so on, or your alternative behavior, but first thing, I recognize you as a, as, a, as, a, as a human being. And that sometimes disarm, you know, it disarm learners in terms of violence and so on and so on. So I've seen, I mean, even outside the classroom, I go to the township, sometimes on weekends, you know, doing church work. And you, I've met some of the gangsters, I mean, that will never come. And the moment they see humanity, they begin to begin to dream, you know. Yes, I want to be like you. 
I want to drive the car that you are driving. Not, I want to take your car. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm glad we get to hear this. Not a joke. I mean, I had yeah. seven, seven gangsters that came. And the first was four, then the other time, then the four said, Do you mind if we bring the big one? I said, Yeah, the big one, you can bring him. <laughs> so he came in here. So, yeah. and I was, that time I was driving in C class, you know. <laughs> so I, I was going to my car, they come to my car. So this big one said, Yeah, this is my dream car. Uh-huh. Then I say, Yeah, I think my car is going today. <laughs> so he said, You know, when I start working, I'm going for this one. So, you know, they started to dream. That's why then I can really see completely, you know, they, they are seeing another side of life. They're dreaming now of working. They're not dreaming of taking it. And they never took my car, I mean, you know. <laughs> so, same thing with learners, you know. I think once they see the other side, you know, the human side of who we are, I'm not saying all of them, but... Uh, I've seen that really working, and it, it's very difficult because if you go with this notion that hey, the whole group is a this area is a violent area, these people are violent, these students come from what sometimes it's very difficult to impact them. But I think being human, being human, it can open up spaces that we never thought that would open for us to, to educate. Thank you so much. Thank you, Prof. Okay, Chloe. I also just think that. And it's important to remember that why adopting a pedagogy of pain doesn't mean that you're neglecting your pedagogy of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and although the teacher is seen as the professional in the classroom, I think that is very important to kind of, I know it's difficult to balance. It's easier said than done. But like Prof said, is the humanitarian aspect thereof, while also realizing that you're in a position, quite a tricky position where you're kind of found in a sense where you have to balance being a professional, a caring professional, meeting the children at their level, whilst also remaining humane. Um, and so I think the teachers are, the teachers are tasked with a difficult job in that sense, but it's not, I, I don't want to say it's with, with, um, outside of our reach. It's very much within our reach to be able to, to see the kids and meet the kids while maintaining the professional. Yeah, no, I agree. Dr. Rock? Maybe just a comment. I think you students now I say this often in class that I firmly believe that teachers cannot do it by themselves. And I think just earlier on Prof Davis you mm-hmm. talking about you know what happens when the school bell goes at two o'clock. So in the Western Cape we have about one and a half thousand <clears throat> uh, low and low fee schools. These are schools where the school fees are about hundred grand or less and about over eight hundred of those schools. They are after school programs and they're in areas where that were just labeled by the media and many others as, you know, some of the most violent areas in Western Cape, etc. But you see regularly learners from those areas who are thriving in softball, thriving, mm-hmm. you know, thriving in the theater. Um, and you see a different child in the art school program. Um, but there's a partnership and connection uh, with others in the community, volunteers, non-profit organizations. You see the teachers come to life after school as coaches, um, as theater, um, sort of, you know, artists and so on. So I do think that they're, um, uh, sort of a collaborative approach to this to inspire that hope and build networks for learners um, uh, is part of, of what we need to uh, improve our discussion as well. Just something to add, I think there are a lot of legal repercussions when it comes to violence, especially from a teacher's perspective towards a, uh, towards a learner and vice versa. And I actually want to point this question towards Dr. Alzan and um, uh, Prof. David. Because I think that the difference 
between legal repercussions when it comes to primary school, high school and university are completely different. Where do you think is the line between, you know, this is still a child, they might not know what they're doing, they're just following what they're being told or what they think might be the best thing to do versus, you know what, at this point I would expect you to be a better person and know what's better for you with keeping in mind there might be a reason that whatever they are doing is happening. If you look at something simple as an example, the other day I read about I have to line up, but I think it was a high school, a few high school students who flipped a police van. And I found myself asking, why would that happen in the first place? It's not something that would just happen out of thin air. What difference do you think there is between, say, as an example, a high school student flipping a police van and a university student flipping a police van, for argument's sake? Well, obviously, there's the issue of what constitutes legal age and, and at which point do you, do you, do you act in as acting as an adult and acting as a child. So we have to understand that children, to use the example of wanting to become a gangster, children emulate the environment they are in. And it gets even more complicated than that. So the children flop the police van. Well, we live in a very, we, we live in a society where there is seemingly very little regard for legal processes, right? Or for kind of acceptable conduct. If we just look at one of the highest gatherings of the country, which is the SONA, and what happens there annually, for example. And I think we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't ignore the fact that students and student leaders, to take the conversation into higher education now, often take their cue from political leaders. These are not disconnected factors. These are all interrelated. There's a reason why we have a very high kind of rate of corruption in this country. Because politically, it's, it's almost been normalized. And so you can't expect, on the one hand, for a child to grow up in an environment where there's all kinds of witnessing of illegal activity and then somehow expect this child not to act out. Now, what do you do when a child decides to flip a police van? It's in nobody's interest to have that child arrested. It's in nobody's interest to have that child expelled. And very often schools think, oh, if I get rid of the child, we're solving the problem. No, if you get rid of the child, you're contributing to a societal problem. Because what's going to happen to this young person? This, this young person's future has come to an abrupt end now. So what's supposed to happen? So in one way or another, society will have to carry this person. So whether it's going to be through support grants or whether it's going to be through a criminal system. So we have to understand our role as, as educators. The more society disintegrates, which is what we're witnessing right now. And let me just say, South Africa is not unique in that regard. It's not as if other societies are perfect. Every society has its own sets of challenges, right? But for our context, the more our society disintegrates, the more the home disintegrates. The more fractured the home is, the more fractured the parenting is, the more teachers have to pick up. And so our roles are way beyond. I mean, you should be aware, for example, that teachers have seven roles assigned to them, but our roles far exceed that. And so when a child is hungry, we have to feed. When a child has psychological problems, we have to counsel. When the child has social problems, we have to remediate. When a child has been abused, we've got to step in and redirect. So it's, it's all symptomatic of a society that has lost its sense of moral compass here. And so we can't, when we're confronted with these acts of violence or vandalism, we have to take the time to sit down with that child 
and get him to understand what has just happened. Because if we're not keen to do that, nobody else is going to. Nobody else is going to. The fact that the child has done that tells you there's something wrong. Often when children act out, yes, some children are naughty for naughty's sake. Call it that. But in the majority of instances, when children act out, there's a reason. It's either because they have learning barriers and they actually don't understand what you are teaching, so I might as well perform, or they want your attention for a reason. And so this is exhausting, I know, but teaching cannot be one of emotional detachment. You have to be all in or all out, right? Where you are halfway in and halfway out, you're going to find disciplinary problems. And so when the children come to school with a knife or a child threatens you or the child is bullying somebody else, whatever it's going to be, yes, it's all part and parcel of the schooling experience. You can begin to remediate these actions if you simply put in place particular processes in the classroom from the outset, but it's not you putting in place the processes. You flip that script and you ask them, what kind of classroom would you like this to be? How would you like me to interact with you? What kind of speech would you like me to use? And you, the moment you change the way you approach discipline, for example, it changes the way children interact with you. Thanks. Prof, I love that you just said that. Thank you. So now I can hook a thing there. The thing I saw in teaching and in seeing teachers that struggle with discipline. Now, I had, because of my personality, I had not a soft class, like a quiet classroom. But um, I could see, and I went out to build connections with the kids, etc., and did extra stuff with them also. But like I'm doing with you guys. <laughs> but I saw the teachers struggled that came in with this idea that they were better than the kids almost like I don't know how to better explain that the authoritarian position and this way of thinking around the teacher student interaction is some understanding about I am the authority figure like this tabula rasa I'm just going to fill your brain you know nothing I must tell you that doesn't work in school anymore so you cannot go into the teaching position, even if we definitely know this as lecturers because we work with adults, you guys, but in a school level, then often primary school, then you go, it's like a little child. They don't know. And so I will tell them. But it is a lot the teachers almost like approach to how they will be with their kids in classroom and then changing from what you've seen in your experiences, what you've witnessed teachers do to you when you were a learner because because it's not that shouldn't be that and maybe hold on to one example that you maybe have somewhere in your in your career as a learner from teachers that have created this type of interaction or space in their classrooms again prof i think like students even even our students have a, don't have a lot of examples even of how that works in practice so what what does that look like when the teacher approaches the children differently with this care or compassion, or, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and just to add to that, in so many instances, what's going to have to happen for our new teachers going into schools is that we're going to have to unlearn some of the practices we, which we were privy to as learners because it's so easy to do what we were shown. And many of us have come out of very authoritarian schools, 
right? Or you might have a kind of schools where when corporal punishment got removed, teachers began to humiliate learners more. They see that as a form of discipline. And so very often what needs to happen now, in order for you to open yourself to a new approach, you've got to unlearn what you have been taught works. Because the, world, the, the way children think the, the, the connection and connectivity, more specifically to social media, gives them a very different perspective on world and on this world and on you. So you've got to learn and find a way to establish a different kind of connection with them. And for me, fundamentally, that comes down to understanding who they are and what kind of diversity they bring into your classroom. And then how do you, through your teaching, acknowledge and include that diversity at every step of the way? So it's entirely possible, but it does mean you've got to both unlearn something which is problematic and then relearn something new. I think that is so beautifully said, actually. And just to this next question is going to open us to a wider perspective. And it's something that you mentioned earlier, Prof, that I'm very excited to ask you this question and hear your insights on this, as well as the audience. So please participate in this one because I really want to learn. And the question is, violence in the education system is something that is deeply ingrained in history and throughout history and even on an international scale. So the two most basic examples I'll give is historically, when you look at like the Soweto uprisings and the necessity I think, of that process in the education system and in disrupting and creating reform. But then you look at it, America's had a history of gun violence and dysregulation in schools, right? So my, my question is, is, why do you think violence is still present in the education system today? And do you think that violence is necessary in the education system? So violence in South African schools stems from South Africans' history of activism against apartheid where students were a ready source of activism, and they were also a volatile source of activism. And most importantly, educational sites became sites of violence and destruction because during apartheid, education was weaponized. The Soweto uprisings were in response to the perpetuation of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. So it's a bit like me talking to you in Italian right now. You, have no, you will have no idea what I'm saying unless you're Italian. So this is what the issue was. So it, and it, it was about the fact that education wasn't used for the emancipation or for the upliftment of black people. It, education was used to reinforce the inferiority. So it's about making sure that there are limits to what they could learn, depriving them from a quality education providing them with what was termed as a Bantu education, where Hendrik Favut was famously quoted as saying that the best thing you can do to a black man is to teach him how to hold a spade. So that was the education provided to black people. Now, the schools were, were, were basic. There, were little, there was little infrastructure. There were no libraries or labs or sporting facilities or swimming pools. And so it wasn't as if these schools were on par with proper educational sites. And so the schools themselves became sites, symbolic sites of the oppression of black people, which is why it was used as a site of violence. And so student act and the ANC government relied heavily on students as a very strong source of activism. And to a very large extent, students played a tremendous role in bringing about democracy in this country. And 
the the violence within that context needs to be understood within that context because it's literally a a battle and a struggle against reclaiming your humanity it's it's not just about fighting against a system of apartheid against a set of laws it's about saying i have the right to be and to be seen and to be treated with dignity because i'm a human being it's as simple as that now to your question why is it continuing well it's continuing because despite the promises of democracy to the overwhelming majority of black people in this country democracy has not been realized very little has changed 29 years in and the historically black schools to which we are referring today very little has changed two weeks ago we had a young child drown in a pit latrine at a school why do we have a pit latrine at a school so we have the promise of democracy where we are living in a so-called democracy where a handful of people are benefiting from its promises yet it was the students who fought for it and now you have the generational impact of the same students coming to you and saying i still can't access you're telling me that i can but i can't because you're telling me that i need to have money but you said that education would be free so these all these mixed messages that are being given and when you put them into a society that's already kind of couched in violence in terms of political fights when we have any sort of civil unrest we had the nehau strike we still have the nehau strike we know what's happened at hospitals because of that strike you are entirely framed in this language of violence students are frustrated and so what you have is you have a protest every single year students are saying please can we access what are they asking for it's not simply they're asking for an access to an institution they are asking for access to a better life if you are telling me i can't enter this institution you are telling me i'm going to be repeating the same cycle of poverty which my parents and grandparents did and so the universities respond with what with more securitization right yeah. so now we have a standoff suddenly we have police on on campuses and and the more and so suddenly the violence escalates and the violence escalates so no there's never going to be a legitimate reason for any student to deface buildings or burn cars or burn libraries i'm i'm on record as saying this repeatedly you cannot convince me that violence has a legitimate place in a democracy but we have to change the way we interact and engage with students we have to take the time to understand what it means when a young person comes to my office and says to me i can't register i have one more year left for my degree what am i supposed to do these are real life desperations that we encounter to some of us sitting here we don't have the hassle of fees we can turn to parents for support we have access to loans to the majority of young people none of those options if i don't get support from my institution or through government my life choices and options are simply removed and i think we need to really focus on why students protest and begin to have a different kind of conversation and universities need to stop waiting for the beginning of the academic year for the inevitable to happen 
and instead begin to have these conversations when students become at risk, which is normally in the previous year already. Thanks. Do we have any last comments from our audience? You can't see all the detail in the room, right? <laughs> no, I can't. Various hands are going up. Um, okay. So, so some comments. All right. So, um, I had an experience where I taught in the in the United Kingdom, and I was a newly qualified teacher. I had two years of experience behind me, and it was break time. I was outside with my umbrella and my cup of tea. And a group of students put their hoodies up and all congregated around one boy at the end of the playground and started kicking him to the point where there was just blood in all over this child. The students then dispersed and I obviously ran. The only thing I had on me was a whistle. So there I am blowing a whistle to try and get attention and then got to the child and obviously all the children had dispersed. And I put the boy's head on my lap and it was just blood everywhere. And you're sitting in a situation where you're in your mid-twenties, you've got no one around you, you're in a foreign place, and you have this young boy, probably around 15, 16, who is beaten to a pulp. And all I heard from the, the building was the headmaster's voice. He looked out the window and he said, Miss Bishop, step away from that child. And in that moment, I thought, how can you say that? How can you tell me to leave this child who obviously needs my help? And two PE teachers came running towards me and said, step away, step away. The, the whole situation seemed so strange to me. It's the complete opposite of how I would have acted had I been in South Africa. And the two PE teachers almost pushed me off the child and took the boy and walked away with him. And I was sitting there going with all these emotions and thinking, what just happened? And only when I got back to the staff room, the headmaster came down with a cup of tea and he sat me down and he said to me, I'm so sorry you, you had to experience that. And I'm so sorry, I, I probably understand that you're completely confused by this whole conversation. But I had to do that to protect you. And I was still trying to figure this all out and realized what had happened was a week before, a female teacher had stepped into a situation in a fight. And the boy had that was, was being beaten used that as an excuse that the teacher had stepped in and sexually assaulted him to save face with the boys that had obviously started the fight. So we um, this sort of touches several different things that we've uh, spoken about. What um, uh, Dr. Rock said about um, you know it's not just us as teachers, a whole community. There are other people who are there in a way to protect us. Um, to help us in situations that can get out of hand. And again, this is a situation that I, I hope never, ever happens and no one experiences because it is such a strange situation. But having that assistance from the PE teachers, knowing immediately that they had to come and help and get me away from the child because of the situation and me not being familiar with the environment, it felt like there was a support group and there was someone actually sort of holding up the teacher and saying, you know, Yes, it's a horrible thing to happen and it's terrible. It's a terrible situation, but uh, we support you and we are there for you. So again, there is a bigger community, as uh, Prof has mentioned, that there, there isn't a space for violence and that should never have happened. But again, uh, if in our schools we can build that opportunity to have that support and that structure so that teachers can feel that they are actually supported, um, it's important. We had other hands up. So you saw going into education, I am the most important thing is, you know, children pick up on our attitudes. So, 
I'm going to break it down. We are a lot of teachers. We are 90% colored and African children. But the ratio is out on the other side of teaching. So what that has created was there is no one there to help the kids speak. And I'm a teacher at a special needs school. So they're not getting someone that's speaking to them in their language, teaching them how to read, how to bring it back to English or to Afrikaans. So what from the beginning they feel that the system has failed. Now they start throwing tantrums, throwing tables, breaking windows because they're not being heard. And it's something I fight every day. Just to get people in that can deal with the children. It's a committee. But you need to understand, you need to have but you also need to know how far we can go. So we deal with kids that come from from the ghettos, from the rich communities. Each child still needs that little bit of attention. And I mean, sometimes as I'm driving to practicals, I get calls. So there's not, there's no money. I can't even buy this children. And I need to stop it before I get the children away. Because at the end of the day, I need to be the point. I need to pass it. <laughs> you need to have that heart just to be the father, be the mother, but know how far you can go. Thank you. Thank you so much. We had another Yeah, I, I think my, my question, and, and maybe related to that, is um, and, and Prof. David's comment uh, on building that relationship with, with the child um, and, and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of that child and the lifeline that this becomes, this connection that I have with the teacher, but comes the end of the year, it's time to move on and I can't help to think how, how devastating it can be if that handover or contingency so I'm not sure how, how the school system uh, and carries that support. You don't have to teach somebody directly in order to retain the relationship. So, of course, generally in a high school, you have five years. And there are so many stories of young people who go into the teaching profession, for example, because of a teacher. There's so many people who change life choices because of somebody who showed an interest in them. I don't think even if you just have a year with somebody, you have a year in which to truly make an impact. And if you make that impact, that child is going to make every effort to still interact with you, even if you don't teach that child. The other thing I want to add is that it's not just in the teaching of the classroom where you can actually connect. There are other ways through sport, through cultural activities, through social activities. So every child, no matter what their circumstances, and I mean, I think we've spoken a lot tonight about underprivileged children or children in poor communities, but we overlook sometimes that the problems we're talking about here also manifest in wealthier communities, in kind of communities where there are resources. You get different <laughs> kinds of challenges there as well, but you also get absent parenting in those communities. What any child wants, 
describe the, the kind of provider they often present to us. Every single human being sitting here, as we are as well, we actually want approval. We want to know that you think highly of me. And for a child, when they come and show you their work or they give you their writing or whatever practical they've done, they want to know that you are happy with them. And that speaks to the purity of a child. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes because we get bogged down by the contextual factors. But I have seen enough as in my previous life as a teacher of at a high school that if you can take the time to connect with somebody and actually make that child feel that he or she has value and that you see the potential in her to achieve, she will rise. And poverty and difficulty can become an incredible motivator for young people to achieve. Because there is a drive where they will say, I actually want to do better. And we have so many of those stories in our faculty of students who have come through our different programs in Schematis, for example, our Matis on the Plane program. Children come out of horrendous circumstances where nobody has expressed hope in them. But because of one person, they said, I can do this. And so our job as teachers is we can't solve an entire school's problems. We're not even going to solve our entire class's problems. But we have to believe that through who we are as teachers, we can change the life of one person. And that's enough. That's enough. And that, for me, is what makes this profession such an incredibly profound one. Thank you, Prof. Davids, for that. And thank you for our audience. I think this has opened up the discussion for much more that's to come. And I think this is the reason why we started the podcast to have this discussion. So thank you for everyone. Thank you for Prof. Davids. Thank you for Dr. Rinquist. And I think the key takeaway and one of the starts for us as teachers is to learn our learners' context and to see the humanity, to take them into consideration and to see them and to make them feel valued in the, in the classroom. So this is only the start of our journey to unpack violence in education. Follow us for the rest of the season. Start from chatter, from our eyes to your ears.